Okay, well, welcome this morning. It's great to see some new faces here as well. Uh, welcome if you're here for the first time. Hope you're enjoying your morning as we meet with God together. And uh, as Tor said, uh, I'm bringing us the next part of our preaching series. We've been looking at the book of Ezra, which is not one that many of us might have uh, looked through before. I've certainly learned a lot through this. It's a book that I've probably skimmed over a fair few times in my lifetime. But yeah, uh, there's been lots for us to learn so far. I'll I'll start by giving us a little bit of a recap, just in case you are here for the first time, just so you know where we're up to. And what we've seen in in the first couple of chapters, we saw that amazing story of the Israelites, they've been exiled from Jerusalem. Uh, for 70 years, some of them, some of them are not longer 70 years, most of them at least 50 years, which is when the temple had been destroyed. And they've been not allowed to live in their own country. Um, the Babylonians with King Nebuchadnezzar have basically chucked them out of, of Israel, of, oh, sorry, of Jerusalem and destroyed their temple. And then suddenly, uh, the Babylonian empire has been swallowed up by the Persian empire, uh, and a guy called King Cyrus. And God moves King Cyrus's heart. The Holy Spirit speaks to King Cyrus and says, you know what? I want you to bring my people home. I want you to send the Israelites back to where they belong, back into Jerusalem. And so we see 40-odd thousand Israelites returning to Jerusalem. That was chapters 1 and 2. That was uh, Matt who brought that to us. Then we had, actually, uh, the next talk in the series, chapter 3, uh, where we saw that, like, actually, although they had this amazing event of being called back to where they, where they belonged, that life wasn't all that rosy. They got back into the city of Jerusalem, but the city of Jerusalem was not what it once was. It had been ransacked, it had been destroyed, and they had this amazing task to try and rebuild life there. But it wasn't like life was before. Uh, the temple was in ruins, and, and although they, they started to rebuild the temple, the temple they rebuilt was not going to be of the same quality as the original temple. And actually, it really felt like something was missing. So although they had this amazing um, opportunity, this amazing revival story, at this point in time, in chapter 3, we see it stalling a little bit, and there's some, there's some resentment, and, and they have this moment where they dedicate the foundations of the new temple, and half the people are joyful and shouting, and thank you, God, this is amazing, and the other half are weeping, as they realize the weight of what's happened to them, their exile years, and also they realize this, this isn't going to be like it was before. This is going to be different. And then we see in chapter 4, things take a bit of a turn for the worse. Chris spoke to us, and if you remember, Chris weaved some of uh, Nehemiah into this. Uh, we talked about opposition to the temple building. Actually, there was a change of, of leadership in, in the Persian Empire, and actually some of the people opposed the rebuilding, and actually the return of Israelites gave up a little bit, and the work on the temple stopped. Having dedicated the temple in chapter 3, uh, it took them about 20 years to actually finish the temple because they kind of gave up in the midst of it. But Chris brought us that amazing story of, from Nehemiah, which is later on in the story when they're rebuilding the temple walls and they face opposition again. But actually what they did was they fought. And with one hand they built the wall and the other hand they defended themselves from opposition. And that's, that's, what, that's what these guys in, the, in, chapter, in chapter 4 could have done with doing, but they didn't and things stalled. And then we saw Matt, I thought Matt's preach last week, if you haven't listened to it, please find it on, on our podcast or our website. Brilliant, brilliant talk, all about the, the power of prophecy. Because what we see is God stirs his prophets. He stirs Haggai and Zechariah to speak to the people, to bring God's word. And God's word is simply this, I am with you. Get on with building that temple. Get on and rebuild my temple. And actually just that simple message, that stirring changes everything and they, they crack on and they get the temple built and the, and the close of chapter 6 we see them celebrating the feast of Passover in their new temple, the rebuilt temple back in Jerusalem and it's a real sa- sense of okay, we're, we're nearly there we're, 
we're kind of this is this is more what we were talking about. So they've come through some hard times, and all that all that stuff has has covered actually quite a few years. Just just six chapters there. We've covered. I don't know on the timeline there. You can kind of see we've covered a good a good forty forty odd years there in, in just that little that little story. This week I'm going to be slightly different. I'm not actually going to focus on a specific chapter or passage in the book. What I want to do is introduce someone to you. I don't know if anyone's noticed. There's been someone missing from the story so far. Can anyone tell me who? Ezra. We've done six chapters and we've not actually met the main man himself. Well, we have because actually it's Ezra who's been writing all this time. But we've not actually met Ezra the man yet. And what I want to do is kind of take a pause in the series to really just introduce Ezra to you, to tell you a little bit about him, commend him to you really, and and see what we can learn from him as a person. And basically from the rest, from this point forward in the series, we're going to see a lot of Ezra. We're going to learn a lot about him. We're going to see some of the things that he did. But I just want to take the time today to just really give him a bit of an intro. So Ezra kind of enters a story in chapter seven. This is where he arrives. And chapter seven starts with the words, after these things. Just three simple words, after these things. After all that stuff that's happened before, Ezra enters a story. But actually, those three simple words are a time jump of about 60 years. The Bible has a funny habit of, of doing that. It'll just casually, casually gloss over 50, 50, 60 years of history. So what's happened in those 60 years? What happened in that intervening time of the temple being completed, the Passover being celebrated, and then later Ezra arriving? Well, actually, it's pretty dramatic stuff. Anyone familiar with the book of Esther? Amazing book of the Bible. Incredible story of an incredible woman of God. And that story is set uh, with a community of, of Jewish people who hadn't moved back to Jerusalem yet. They were living in the Babylonian Empire still. And in that story, um, we see actually the people living in that area were almost exterminated entirely. A whole generation of Jewish people were almost wiped off the face of the earth. But for Esther... And those famous words of, who knows, but for a time such as this. And Esther steps in and, and, and stops that from happening. Well, that happened in this intervening period. So life hasn't got all that, all that sort of perfect for the Jews in this time. We know that they've built the temple. Those, those Jews who are, who are in Jerusalem, they're living in that era of the temple being built. They've got their, their worship and their sacrifices kind of sorted. They're back in the game. They've got their altar. They've got their temple. They're doing the sacrifices. They're celebrating the feasts. But the city itself is still pretty much in ruins. So when the Babylonians had had taken over Jerusalem, they basically destroyed the walls of the city. The city was a mess. And although they've reinstated the temple, they've reinstated the religious kind of practices, the city is still not what it should be. It's still a mess. And actually, they're still quite vulnerable. If, if, If another attack was to come, if another empire was to rise up against them, they'd be wiped off again because they're not prepared for anything. They're really kind of sitting ducks where they are. And although they've got the temple, and although they're celebrating these feasts, actually, their heart for God is still quite weak. And what we see is a kind of, a kind of sacred secular divide in the hearts of the people. On their, on their temple times, they, they get on with it and they do the sacrifices, they do the worship, they do those things that they should do. But for the rest of the week, they're not really living for God. It's like, you know, they kind of just get on with life without him until they need to sacrifice a, a goat or whatever it is. And I don't know if that reminds you of anything, but that culture of, you know, church on a Sunday and then life as we, as we want to live for the rest of the week. I think actually that's quite a big issue in this city. I don't know if you've come across it, 
this, this thing of turning up in your Sunday best and coming to church on a Sunday morning and then living as if it didn't exist for the rest of the week. I do, I do see that. I've spoken to some people when we've been doing our, our outreach on Allerton Road and we've been speaking to people and talking to them about God and I've literally come across people and said, you know, you know, do you go to church? Do you, you know, like, oh yeah. Well, I go to church if it's got a good social club attached to it. <laughs> if the bar's good and they've got cheap drinks, then I'll, I'll go to that church and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do my bit on a Sunday and then I just like to have a few drinks in the week. And, you know, that to some people, it is a bit of a mindset here. It does happen. And that was what was kind of what was going on. Uh, for, for the people of, of Jerusalem at that time. So we see actually they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable physically with their walls destroyed. They're vulnerable to attack from, from other nations and other empires. But they're also vulnerable spiritually because what they've got is a weak faith. It's based purely on ritual, not on spirituality. They're not people who love God's word. They're not people who are really living hard for God. They're kind of just going through the motions. Can you identify with that? Has anyone had a phase like that in your life where You've kind of just, you know, you've done church on a Sunday, but then for the rest of the week, you kind of just do your own thing. God feels a bit far off. It's like, it's kind of like putting God in a, in a, bit, of a, in a bit of a box, actually. It's saying, okay, God, Sunday morning, out you come. Let's, let's do our thing, and then back you go. I'm just going to get on with work. That's kind of the culture that, that Ezra arrives at. So why Ezra? Why does God choose this time in history to bring Ezra to the plate? What, what's so special about Ezra? Why is Ezra the man to come and arrive in Jerusalem after all this time? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest there are three things, three things which, which make Ezra the man for the job. First of all, Ezra's heritage. Ezra's heritage. I don't know if you're familiar with the TV series, Who Do You Think You Are? Really interesting program. Um, where people, you delve into someone's family background, you look at their lineage, you look at their ancestry, and there's always something amazing comes out about, you know, some person three or four generations back who is this incredible person, or sometimes a terrible person. It's always quite emotional as people discover who their family was. Well, for Ezra, family lineage, family line is absolutely key. Again, I'm not going to go deep into the scripture this week, that will come over the next few weeks, but the first part of Ezra 7 we see Ezra's family line traced all the way back to Aaron, who was the, the first real chief priest of Israel, Moses' his pal. He was the guy who established and, and basically ran the show, the very first tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwelt with the Israelites. He was the guy in charge of all the rituals, of all the sacrifices. His family lived closest to the tabernacle and looked after it. They were the ones responsible for setting it up and taking it down as the people moved. And actually, his, his, you know, all of the priests of Israel descend from Aaron, from the tribe of Levi, but specifically from Aaron himself. And Ezra's family line is that family line. He's from the line of priests. And his, his line has got some of the great names of, of, of Israelite priests. Anyone familiar with the Champions League? I'm an Everton fan. I haven't got a clue about it. Um, the theme, the theme tune. See, I can't take the mickey out of myself sometimes. Uh, the theme tune for the Champions League is a piece of music by Handel, uh, and it's called Zadok the Priest. And Zadok was one of the key priests in the history of Israel. You can find him in your Bibles if you look hard enough. Um, You've also got, Tori is singing it for us there. I, hope, I really hope the mic picked that up so it's on the podcast. Um, 
But you know what? Why is this important? Why am, I, why am I bothering to tell you this? Well, the role of priest, and especially the chief or the high priest, was absolutely vital to the life of the Jewish people, to the worship of the Jewish people. Because under that Mosaic law, God's law, which he gave to Moses, the role of priest was entirely restricted, as I said, to the family of uh, the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. And basically what the priests did, they were essentially the, the, the representatives of all the people before God. All of them. It was the priests who made the sacrifices on behalf of the people. The people would bring the animals or whatever it was they were sacrificing, but it was the priest who actually made the sacrifices, who carried out the ritual, whether it was grain or animals or whatever. They had a level of access to God that the ordinary folk did not have. You know, it was priests who could enter the tabernacle or the temple, the place that was called the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant lived, the place where God's law was kept. Only the high priest could enter that place in those days. No one else could, to the the point of death. So straight away, Ezra is marked out as someone who has a specific status and position. He is from this family line of priests. And actually, it gets even more personal than that for Ezra. You'll see in those verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7, you see a guy mentioned called Sariah. Sariah. And this is significant. If you want to rewind with me uh, to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 25, we actually see the events of what happened when King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, all those years ago, took over Jerusalem and kicked the Jews out and ransacked the temple and just destroyed it. Read this with me. This is chapter 25. This just gives you a flavour. So in the ninth year of King Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and he built siege works all around it. Can you imagine how that felt? Being in a city that's under siege, how scary that would be. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of Zedekiah. And by the ninth day of the fourth month, the the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. And then the city wall was broken through. And the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled towards Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered and he was captured. So you've got the Babylonian army. They've encircled the city. They've they've cut off its supply. They've starved it out. They've broken through the wall and they've chased the king himself out of the city. Well, then we skip to verse 18 and look at this. Remember this guy, Sariah, that I just mentioned, the guy who's in Aaron's family line. Listen to this. The commander of the guard took his prisoners, Sariah, the chief priest. Zephaniah the priest, next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. <clears throat> of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and five royal advisors. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of conscripting people, uh, the people of the land, and 60 of the conscripts who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And there at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. Now, in the passage, Sariah, the chief priest, is listed as, um, as Ezra's actual father. That's not actually the case. He was certainly one of his near ancestors, probably a great-grandfather. But basically, the, the very last person who performed the role of chief priest before the exile 
was someone directly related to Ezra himself. That's how close he was to that line of priests. And that guy had been carried off by the king and executed. So actually, I want to suggest this is personal for Ezra. If you think back to who do you think you are, you imagine him finding this out and realizing that that was my, that was my great granddad. He was the chief priest and he was brutally taken away and slaughtered by the king. He was a man who represented people before God and was killed for it. This goes deep for Ezra. He is personally invested in the re-establishment of the Jews in Jerusalem. He's a man whose ancestral family played a huge role in the religious life of the nation and he suffered greatly for it. And the re-establishment of proper worship, of a proper heart for God in that city, it really matters to Ezra. And it's almost a form of redemption, not just for the people, but for his own family line. So that's firstly why this matters to Ezra, why Ezra was chosen. Secondly, Ezra's passion and his gift. Again, in chapter 7, we're, we're introduced to the sort of guy that Ezra is. And you know, he's not simply a person who's got priesthood in his blood and wants to take it back at all costs. It's not just about that for him. He is a seriously gifted man. You have to remember here, that actually, he's, this is Ezra writing, so he's actually talking a little bit about himself here, which is quite difficult to do. But he's, he wants to get across to people, what, <clears throat> these are my qualifications, this is why, this is why I'm the guy. And he says this about himself. He describes himself as a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. He describes himself as having devoted himself to the study and observance of the law and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And he calls himself a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. This guy knows his stuff. He really knows his stuff. In captivity... Because Ezra, Ezra hasn't lived in Jerusalem this time. He's been living elsewhere. He's made it his business to love the word of God. To learn it off by heart. To live it out. He is passionately obsessed with God's word. And you know, when we hear about people who've got that sort of expertise, sometimes it can be a little bit off-putting. When I was <clears throat> back in school, um, my school decided it really would help its credibility to get some of its students into Oxford or Cambridge. So they built up this link with Oriel College, Oxford, and they decided to send a load of us down there. Anyone who they thought had half a chance of getting into Oxford, they sent down there for this formal trip to meet the academics, to get an idea of what life was like down there, and to try and get an interest in, in applying for there. And amazingly, I got on this trip to go to Oriel College, Oxford. Now, quite wrongly, I considered myself to be a bit of a working-class scouser. I'm not working-class scouser. I lived in a vicarage, I mean, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up eating cucumber sandwiches and having garden parties, but to me, I'm a working class cow, sorry. Now, I was really, I had in my head a picture of what people who go to Oxford look like, of what Oxford scholars look like. You know, I imagined stuffy, posh, really learned people who were just really, you know, just really, really um, toffee-nosed, you know. I just had this picture in my head, really unfairly, of, of what someone who taught or lived at Oxford looked like. Has anyone here been to Oxford or Cambridge, by the way? <laughs> Pete? No, you never. Did you? Oh, that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I go on this trip to Oriel, and it turned out I was absolutely right. 
I met this, I was introduced to this theology professor. And he was, that's not him, but that's what he was wearing, okay? He was everything I'd built up in my head to be. I know this sounds terrible, I'm a terrible person, please forgive me. Bow tie, tweed jacket, this really dark office with literally thousands of books. Only old books, no new books, old, old books. Everywhere. And he spoke in the most sort of aristocratic, toffee-nosed way. And I was like, oh man, I do not belong here. Um, and you know, we had this extremely highbrow conversation. It wasn't a highbrow conversation. It was him talking about lots of stuff that he knew and me going, hmm, yes. You know, he was asking me all these things. Like, what, what, are your, what are your research interests? What, I was like, um, Bible. Yeah, I like the Bible. You know, I, you know, I couldn't think of anything. I had very little experience at the time and he was, he was trying to suss me out. And he, I think he knew within minutes that I was not Oxford material. I'd already decided I wasn't. Um, but in my opinion, and it is an opinion, the culture at times in those places was for knowledge to be the end, the end goal, to puff up. And that's what the Bible says knowledge does on its own. It puffs people up. And in my head, I'd built Oxford up to be this place where people got as much knowledge as they possibly could, all with a, all with a, a goal to, to know as much as you can. And I didn't, I didn't get a sense of that knowledge being used for anything useful. I'm I'm being very unfair. I'm sure the guy was a lovely, lovely man, and it's absolutely fine. But that was my my sense. In the end, to be honest, my mate, we got bored. He went and stole a bike and rode it across the grass at Oriel. And we had a good night out. So the trip went well, and I didn't go to Oxford. But what I picked up from there was this love of knowledge. And knowledge in and of itself is not a bad thing. Don't don't hear me wrong. But where knowledge itself is the goal, the the end game, I think there's a problem. Now, Ezra is clearly a learned man. He's clearly an incredibly intelligent man. In fact, it's reckoned that the books of uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles are written by Ezra. Uh, so most, most scholars, you know, there's a bit of debate about it, but they, they reckon it's certainly dated around the right time. Actually, he was an incredible researcher and historian. You know, in our day and age, research looks like picking your phone up and saying, OK, Google, tell me about this, tell me about that, or, or Siri if you're on an iPhone. You know, this guy, at a time when there weren't libraries to go to, and there weren't loads and loads of books and loads of Wikipedia articles to read, this guy researched the entire history of his people and wrote it down for them. But, you know, it wasn't about him being knowledgeable. He didn't do this to puff himself up to be a learned man and, and to be seen as Mr. Clever Clogs. His desire was to see the people of Israel living well, to see them living life as God had commanded them. He was a man gifted to show people the right way to live. And he carried that task out with such diligence and obedience. Knowledge wasn't the end game for Ezra. Bringing his people back into relationship with their God was Ezra's endgame. And um, Proverbs 7, I was reading this the other day, the, f- the first few verses of this could almost be written for Ezra. It says this, My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And to insight, you are my relative. And they will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman in her, with her seductive words. 
clearly is a knowledgeable man, but it's with purpose. For him, God's word is the apple of his eye. It's written on the tablet of his heart. But it's because he knows that living in that knowledge and living in the light of that word is going to keep him safe. It's going to keep the people of God safe. And he knows that living in God's wisdom truly is the wisest choice that could be made. And Ezra's role also is as a scribe. You'll see this referred to in the Bible quite a bit. We talk about scribes. And a scribe was basically had, had three roles. It was the study, which we know Ezra did. He, he talks about how much he studied. It was a study of God, God's word and to learn it and to know it. But then it was also to interpret God's word, to kind of give sense to it. It's one thing knowing it, but to be able to then interpret it to other people, to explain to other people what it means so that they can get it too. Because not everyone's got the same means of access to the word or the same, the same brain power, the same uh, research ability. To actually learn the word, but then interpret it and show people, look, this is what this means. That was an incredibly important skill that Nehemiah had. And then thirdly, actually as a scribe, his role was literally to copy the word. Not everyone could read or write back then. Not everyone had access to, to books and scriptures. So Ezra's job partly was to reproduce scripture. To make copy and copy and copy so that more and more people have access to it. Can you see the incredible importance that Ezra has to the people of God at this time? Here's someone who knows the word inside out and is intent on sharing it and helping the people to live by it. The people needed someone at this time to bring them back to God properly. Not just to show them how to do a sacrifice and a ritual, but to rediscover God's holy word to them. To help them figure out how to live right with God. He had a deep understanding of Israel's history as the people of God and of God's requirements of his people. And actually, I won't give away any spoilers, but over the next few weeks, we're going to see some of the huge decisions that Ezra has to face in that role, where he finds ways that people haven't been living right. And they've been doing things that haven't been pleasing to God. And as the scribe and as the scholar and as the person that God's chosen, he has to bring and apply God's word and God's discipline. And it's a huge task, a painful task. But he's someone who does it with diligence and faith. So, Ezra has the heritage for the role. He also has the passion and the gift for the role. Thirdly, why Ezra? Well, quite simply, as is often the case in the Bible, God chose him. God chose Ezra. We see several times again in chapter 7, verses like... Uh, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. In verse 9. In verse 25, this is the king, the king, king Artaxerxes. He's the king who actually sends Ezra back and says, I want you to go. He says, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess. Even, even someone who wasn't a Jew, somebody who didn't know God, could see in Ezra that he possessed a wisdom from his God that was vital. And in verse 28, Ezra says, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage. Ezra is one of countless examples of people in the Bible who becomes a key, pivotal person for what comes down to almost one reason, which is that God makes it happen. God makes it happen. Time and time again, God simply chooses people. He raises up often the least likely person to do incredible things for him. 
And it's not that these people aren't gifted, as we've seen with Ezra, he is gifted. He has the, the passion and the talent. But gifted doesn't mean unique. Gifted doesn't mean that they're the only possible person who can do that job. Other people can do amazing things as well. But God specifically chooses some people for just the right time and just the right place to do something amazing for him. We see it in the Bible with Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Joseph, Saul, David, any of the prophets you want to name. In the New Testament, Peter, Paul, John, James, so many people that God just puts his hand on and says, yeah, I want you to do this. I choose you. And in this particular case, we see that happen. Ezra's return to Jerusalem is made possible because he finds incredible favour with the new king, Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes says, I want you to go. He's not a Jew, remember. He's not, he's not someone who loves God. He says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to reestablish the law of God amongst that people. How crazy is that? How unbelievable is that? In fact, he doesn't just send him to do that. He sends him with a pile of silver and gold from the king's treasury. And it's basically said, do with this as you see fit. And if there's any left, you decide what to do with it. It's incredible. He's basically given a blank canvas and a massive budget to go and lead a revival by someone who doesn't even know God. Can you imagine that happened today? I mean, Theresa May, I believe, apparently is, is a Christian, which is great. Maybe she's not the best example to use. But anyway, just imagine her saying to one of us, do you know what? That city's in a bit of a mess right now. Um, so I'd like you to go uh, with a load of government funding uh, to go and lead a, lead a mission. Could you go and lead a revival of, of, of God amongst, you know, the city of Liverpool, it's struggling a bit. So here's a load of money. Can you go and just preach the gospel and lead a revival in that city? Because that'd be great. Thanks very much. That's, that's a Tory party policy for you. Can you imagine that happening? That's kind of what happens here. Ezra's just given this mandate from the king to go and do something amazing. Do you know what? I don't think that happens without God. <laughs> I don't think that happens by accident or coincidence. That is God moving and making something happen. He's given incredible favour from a king who doesn't know God. And he also has humility. Because actually Ezra had a cushy life where he was. He was living a good life. He was well in with the king, actually. That's why the king sent him. He knew that Ezra was a man of God, and he sent him to do this particular role because he knew Ezra well. Ezra had a position of good standing. But he's like, do you know what? I've got to go back to Jerusalem. The people need God. And I, I believe I can show them him. Okay, so we've got heritage, we've got passion and gift, and we've got the hand of God in Ezra's life. That's why Ezra is important, that's why he's chosen. So what does this mean for us today? Why is this, what, what is this going to teach us? Well, Ezra is a perfect fit for Israel at this time. Because he's going to be the guy who reconciles, helps to reconcile the Israelites to God. And it's not just a case of throwing the right animals on the altar, of putting the right festival in the temple. Actually, he's going to help people to become people of the book. People who know and love God's word again. He's going to represent the people before God as a priest and as someone who will mediate between God and the people. And actually in this, we can see that Ezra is a kind of foreshadowing of Jesus himself. There's a table on the screen there if you, if you can read it properly, but there's some, there's some quite clear similarities between Ezra and Jesus. 
you see they've both got that heritage. Ezra's heritage from that line of priests, Jesus' heritage as a king. We know he descended directly from the line of David. They've both got that passion and gift. You know, Ezra as a priest, as a lover of God's word, as a teacher. You know, Jesus was exactly the same in those respects. He had that. He knew God's word inside out. He loved God's word. He taught. He was a priest to his people. But Jesus added miracles to that as well. Ezra didn't do, didn't do the miraculous stuff. And whereas Ezra brought a lot of discipline, actually Jesus tended to go more for just love and grace. But you can see there's, they've both got that passion and gift. They've both had an incredible calling from God on their lives. We know that too. Ezra, as we said, the gracious hand of God was on him. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And having the heritage, having the gift, having the calling, they're both willing to sacrifice. Ezra sacrificed his cushy life in the courts of the king of Babylon to return to Jerusalem and lead a revival in his people. Jesus sacrificed his place in heaven to become flesh and to come to earth and to live out an incredible life and ministry and ultimately to die for us. So you can see that Ezra shows us something. He's a foreshadowing of what was to come in Jesus some 400 odd years later. The moment we talked about Ezra being a priest and we talked about the priests being the only ones who get access the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself dwelled. The moment Jesus makes his sacrifice, the moment Jesus dies on the cross, anyone remember what happens to the temple curtain? Torn in two, from top to bottom. The curtain which was the barrier between people and God, the moment Jesus died, broke in two. And that's an incredibly important moment for us because we've seen that Ezra was a priest, someone who represented the people before God. He was the one who could go in and know God and then help other people to know him too. We see Jesus do that too. He, he is a man who, he was God. He is God. He shows God to people. And then with his death, he rips the temple curtain in two. Well, this is the important bit. Because now, as people living in the light of that sacrifice of Jesus, we have access to God. And we, the people of God, are now priests. This is what it says in 1 Peter. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Did you hear that? You, you, all of us, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. It goes on, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then it says in verse 12, live such good lives among pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Something, the moment that temple curtain was ripped in two, something incredible happened. Because now we, the people of God, are all priests. We're all Ezra's. We're all called to a role that used to be restricted to a chosen few by birth. But is now for all of us. Suddenly we are the ones, like Ezra, 
who have the responsibility of showing God to people. Of living lives which reveal God to a society which has lost its heart for him. Just as Ezra went back into Jerusalem to reestablish a love for God, that's our, that's our role. Like Ezra, we are to be people of the book. We are to be people who love this, who study it, who practice it, who know it, and who share it. Remember that part of Ezra's role as a scribe was to copy scripture to make sure it went further? That's us. We're royal priests. We need to love this so that other people will love it too. Ezra believed passionately that the answer to Israel's problems lay in the law of God, in God's word. And that if he could just help them reignite their passion for the word, then he knew that their lives would be better for it. He knew. And you know what? Our world is just very similar, even now. Our world is lacking truth. It's lacking a love for this. It's lacking a heart for God. It puts God in a box, sometimes never to be taken out again. Other times just to be taken out on special occasions. It needs to know every day the God who loves it, who loves them. And we're the ones, the royal priests now, who need to show that to people. So actually, as we look at Ezra, as we, I hope you've got a flavour of who he was and what he did. But actually it's not just, he's not just a figure in history to be admired actually. He is a blueprint for us. He's a forerunner for us. Because he went and did something incredible for the people of God. And you'll, we'll see more of what he did exactly in the next few weeks. But the role he carried out is now ours. We are the priests. It is our job to help people to know and love God by, by exemplifying him, by showing him, showing them our, his word. Do you know, it's, uh, you feel like a heavy responsibility, can't it? You know, Ezra had a massive job on his hands. It was a scary situation. He was just one guy charged with trying to lead a revival amongst thousands of people. It's not an easy job. And now, as I say, it's us. We are God's people. We are God's priests called to do this. And I don't want to make light of it, but I also don't want to leave people feeling burdened and pressured today. Do you know what? There's a reason why it's not just one person anymore. It's our calling as as not just individuals, but as a church, as a people of God, to be people of the book, to be people who love this city and love this nation. And we're not doing it on our own. We're doing it together. And that's why as a church, we're doing these Alpha courses, we're doing this street evangelism, we're doing these Jesus Loves conferences, we're doing all these other things together. Because we are people together on a mission to show people who God is. I just want to spend some time worshipping now just to, just to reignite our hearts for the task. Because it's not easy. It's not an easy thing. It's not a light thing. And yet God also says, you know what? My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Actually, it's as easy as just loving this. Everything Ezra did came from a love of God's word. And I don't think it felt heavy to him. 
because he knew his God so well. And he knew that he was a God of grace and a God of love. I just want to encourage us this morning just to love on God. To be people who feast on his word. And from that point of just being completely satisfied with him, filled up with his word, we can go out and do incredible things as the people of God, as royal priests. God doesn't commission us for stuff that he doesn't give us the gifts for. He gives us everything we need to do it. And he's given us it here. So let's worship God. Let's thank him for his word. Let's thank him for his grace to us. Let's thank him for the sacrifice he made for us. That that temple care and ripping in two. And let's praise him now as we as we recommission ourselves as a royal priest of God to go out to this city, to go out to these people and to show, reveal God's scripture to them.